Well, as Pastor Carter mentioned in the announcement video, we are quite excited about, very excited about this new series, a summer series uh, that we're entitling The Case for Truth. And it's, sometimes we call this apologetics, although we're not apologizing for anything. It, apologetics refers to the defense of the face, the, the, the why behind the what. Why is it that we believe and can have confidence in uh, what has been revealed to us by God through Christ and through his word. So we invite you on this uh, adventure. We're really excited about doing this together. And I'm especially honored and grateful to be able to do this with my good friend, uh, Dr. Wave Nunley. Uh, Dr. Wave and I uh, do Israel <coughs> trips together. Maybe we'll do one in November, we're hoping. hoping. First 10 days has been postponed twice already, but uh, we're hoping to take a whole group of you with us. Uh, and he is an expert in early Judaism and Christian origins. Nearly 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. A professor at Evangel University most recently. And then you've taught the Faith Builders class here, right? For how long? Going on 25 years. 25 years, Faith Builders. They meet over in the Activity Center. And, um, I think you may start meeting live next week. Is that right? Or in the it's next coming. couple of weeks? It's coming soon. Anyway, Dr. Wave, thank you so much oh, for, for, for helping me with this. Uh, truth uh, is a word that I think is in crisis in our culture today. Yep. Because um, probably for the last, I would say for at least the last 40 or 50 years now, relativism yeah. has become an almost unquestioned assumption in our, in our culture. Right. And relativism, of course, says there is no absolute truth, no absolute truth. And um, sometimes the language of relativism um, Maybe you're trying to share Christ with somebody, one of your non-Christian friends, and they will say to you, well, that's fine if it works for you, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Um, some of the language of relativism, it, relativism is getting a little more aggressive these days, where, where people will say, will feel offended when you share what you believe with them and invite them to trust Christ. And, and they'll say, how dare you impose your values on me. Don't impose your values on me, right? Because your truth is your truth, mine is mine. Yes. And, and in essence, it seems like, like, like these days we're saying truth is what you choose it to be. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I've been trying to think that through. If, if truth is just what you choose truth to be, and then truth is what I choose it to be, which could be two different things right. if, if in another world, maybe. Um, then it seems to me like, like there is no truth, right? Like if truth is what we choose it to be, can we really say there is truth? You know, to me, it, when you're listening to people talk like that, it's almost like, wait a minute, the, the very question starts out with a false assumption or a false yeah. premise. If truth is what we choose it to be, well, wait a minute, I, I didn't accept that. that I, yeah. I didn't sign off on that to begin with. So anything you build on top of that is also going to be a problem. Uh, truth is what we choose it to be. Doesn't that mean there's no truth at all? No, I, I don't agree that truth is what we choose it to be. In every other area of life, in the areas of biology or physics or, or, or mathematics, you get absolutes, and, and those are unchangeable, and what we think about them, what we prefer to be, doesn't change reality. 
in terms of the work of sociologists as they've studied cultures throughout history and in different places in the world, there are absolutes that translate into every culture. For example, the sanctity of private property. There's a version of that even within communistic countries or the sanctity of human life. People might be defining it in different ways around the edges, but there's this attitude throughout humanity that human life is precious. Um, two plus two, everybody across the world and ev throughout history has always recognized that that equals four. And, and what we think about it and what we prefer doesn't change the fact that if you put two fingers up here and two fingers up there and you count them, you get four. Uh, right. th there's a, uh, the, the theory of the gravity that uh, Sir Isaac Newton is so famous for, the apple dropping from the tree, it's still falling down. It never falls up or sideways. That's without respect to what we think about gravity. Some of us are suffering from the effects of it, but we can't roll back. <laughs> we you had to bring that up, huh? <laughs> it is what it is. I thought we this can't was redefine a those realities. We will age. The sun, whether you want it to or not, tomorrow morning is going to come up in the east, and it's going to yeah. set in the west as it always has throughout human history. We will always need oxygen. We will always need food. And what we prefer to be or what we think ought to happen in the future yeah. doesn't make any difference. Those are locked in. So, you know, it's just amazing to me that that people can think in their worldview that we have all these absolutes in every other area of life, but then all of a sudden, when you come to the world of faith, belief, or what we call theology, that's automatically a jump ball. Or in the area of ethics or morals, well, those are just all jump balls. That would make the areas of theology and morality the, yeah. the unbelievable exception to the rule in every other area of our lives. Here's another thought that I have when I'm thinking in terms of um, relativism, no moral absolutes, um, no absolute truth, uh, postmodernism is that someone who has that attitude, that approach toward life, you just try defining reality in a way that negatively impacts them. Like, you know what, in my belief system, it's totally cool if I drain your bank account. It's, it would be, it's in my world, it'd be totally acceptable for me to steal your children and sell them into human trafficking. All of a sudden, wait a minute, that, that wouldn't be right. That, that would be immoral. That would be against the law. That would be inappropriate. You know, all of these, these absolutes start coming from someone who has said, well, you know, there's no, there is no moral or truth absolutes, and we get to define that however we want. That stops right at that person's front door. So these are some thoughts that I've yeah. had on this matter of, uh, the relative nature of absolute truth. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about science. I, I, I was thinking about Einstein. hundred years ago, he developed the theory of relativity, which is actually something different. And he didn't like that title, actually. Mm -hmm. he, he thought his theory should have been called the theory of invariance. They mm -hmm. don't vary. Mm -hmm. the, the fixed relationship between space and time, between energy and matter, don't vary. But the horse was kind of already out on the barn on theory of relativity, so, um, so he, he couldn't pull that back. But exactly, and we've come to resent this idea of invariance. But 
you know, to what you were saying right at the end in the area of morality and theology, um, it, it seems tough, it does seem tough to live consistently if you're a relativist. Mm -hmm. And we're really seeing this more and more where our culture is moving towards, let's say you and I disagree politically, you know, and we have a little argument about it. You know, the default situation is that if you disagree with me, you must hate me, right? And all of this kind of thing. Um, and then, and then it, it's being taken a step further, like, like if, you, if you disagree with what I think is true, then, then you're my enemy and I've got to somehow censor you mm -hmm. or cancel you. Um, I, because of my background in the sciences, I've hosted faith science conferences right. with Christian scientists speaking, mm -hmm. and they will, I'm shocked how many have, have said to me, please do not record mm -hmm. anything I'm gonna say because if the academic institution I do research and teach with ever hears me connect faith with science, mm -hmm. I could lose my job. I mean, I'm shocked at the thought control uh, that's out there in our culture. It seems so antithetic to the tolerance of relatives. Well, it's fine for you, it's fine for me. I don't exactly. It just, it seems hard to be consistent as a relativist mm -hmm. these days. So I, uh, I, I chose as my, um, title, as our title for this, this message, uh, What is Truth? And I'm actually stealing those words from Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who ended up sentencing Jesus to his crucifixion. And back in John chapter uh, 18, uh, verse 36, uh, Jesus is talking to Pilate. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders but now my kingdom is from another place. So he's, he's writing a very different script here. There's an ultimate reality somewhere else that we find a reference point to. Oh, Pilate says, so you're then, so you're a king then, Pilate said. But Jesus answered, you, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate's famous three words that have kind of run through the last 2,000 years. What, what is, is truth? truth? What is truth? But if you just go back a few hours from this meeting with Pilate and Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper, and he said to them, and this will be kind of a, an anchor verse for us throughout this series, Jesus said something rather amazing. He said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm the way to God. I am the creator. I'm the life. But I am the embodiment of the truth. Mm -hmm. I'm the reference point for all of truth. And uh, so that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty stunning and yet incredibly helpful. Indeed. That somehow Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Yes. I know I've heard you tell this story several times, but, but, but how, how did, I'd be interested for you to share with everybody how, how you came to encounter Jesus as truth, because you're a scholar, right? right. And, and you had that instinct from the time you were young. Yes, exactly. Uh, how do I find my way to the truth? My life trajectory, my journey toward faith is probably a lot like yours, uh, at least in terms of you had the witness of other people in your life, the example set by folks. I had a very 
powerful granddad who had a great Christian testimony. Uh, uh, you probably were um, experiencing or benefiting from the prayers of people who were praying for you that you would find your way to the way, the truth, and the life. Um, you were in one, to one degree or another like me, you had some influence of the Word of God proclaimed and faith comes by hearing and I certainly had some of that and you also were experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit and His wooing and drawing you toward Jesus. But, you know, I was a child of the 60s and 70s, the Woodstock, right, generation. Now we've shortened everything to the X generation, the Y's generation, the Z generation. But we had big long names back in the day. And so we were the Woodstock generation. We were the… He was really a hippie. We were the do your own thing, you know, don't let anybody else tell you what you, uh, what you ought to do, what you shouldn't do, uh, which has just now morphed into this uh, idea of there is no absolute truth. That idea has been around from time yeah. immemorial, guys. Yeah. S- uh, since the, the fall in the garden, people have been wanting to rewrite their own script, have been wanting the, the, the privilege, the power, the authority to write their own checks. Right. Um, so I wanted that. As a, as a young adult, I was wanting that kind of freedom. The thing that stood in the way, though, was there was this thing called the Word of God. And so I had to do something with that, its authority on over me. So I began to read and research, and I spent hours and hours in libraries trying to convince myself, trying to research my way into a place where I could conclude, yep, too many contradictions, too much evidence to the contrary. Uh, you, you know, uh, it, faith is, uh, is unreliable. It, it's, a, it's variable. It's not absolute. And faith is a fiction. And so, I, I felt like if I could just get to that point with the Scriptures, then I would be justified in doing what I wanted to do as opposed to God's plan, God's call, God's Word, and this is the way walk ye therein. So I researched and I read and I spent the hours and hours and the more that I did, the more I painted myself into my own corner. And I finally got to a point where I'd seen enough that I had to say, I give up and this is legitimate. This is God's word and it's confirmed over and over and over. And then there was the responsibility on my end to submit, to bow my knee and to give voice to the mastery of someone other than myself on my life. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I came to faith. And from 1974 up until this point, it's been that pursuit of more and more truth yeah. because, he said this too, Pastor, the more truth that you get inside of you, the freer, freer you get. you are. The truth Absolutely. sets you free. Absolutely. Yeah, well, um, it, it strikes me as I listen to your story how easy rebellion can make relativists out of us, but… It's so convenient. Yeah. And I love what you did. You actually looked… I have people say, well, the Bible is written by people on drugs and such as a fancy, you know. But you actually took the time to actually read research and you came to see the evidence behind our faith. We're going to use that word evidence quite a bit, of course. Next week I'm going to give kind of an overview of how we can answer the question, why can we trust the Bible? 
Um, what evidence do we have? And then you're going to drill deeper on that the next Sunday. Um, with you've done so much with the original manuscripts of Scripture, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You're an expert in that, so that's going to be fascinating to hear. There is a lot of evidence. However, evidence is good, but does faith still have a role? Like. People ask me, where, where does faith fit into all that? Okay, right. you get into your apologetics thing, Pastor, but okay, there's evidence, but so, so what role does faith fill in this? So my wife and I, we travel a lot and speak out of town, out of state, and we present all kinds of evidence. In Israel, we're looking at all kinds of evidence when I teach there. Stuff from the world of archaeology, stuff from the world of the geography of the lands of the Bible, ancient literatures outside the Bible, and many other disciplines we bring to bear on the text of uh, Scripture. And inevitably, whether it's here in seminars, preaching, teaching in churches around, or it's in the land of Israel, riding down the road on a bus or on site, the, the question will eventually come up. Somebody's going to ask at some point, well, okay, so there's so much evidence for this, the Bible's the Word of God, God is real, God's active and wanting to be involved in our lives, then where's the place of faith in all of that? Most of the time in these kinds of discussions, a couple of scriptures come up on a regular basis. One is Hebrews chapter 11. Some of you know this by heart. The first verse says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Where's the place of faith in that? Sometimes Romans chapter 8 will also come up in these sorts of discussions. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he's already seeing? Well, what I do is I go, I take folks back that bring up these questions right back to the Scriptures where their questions are originating from. Let's look at the broader context in which those two passages occur. And what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, that's what we call the roll call of faith, these great heroes of the faith. And in verse 13, it sort of summarizes. It says, these all died in faith without receiving the promises, but they've, they've seen them and welcomed them from a far distance. In other words, the aspect of faith, that little component of faith that Hebrews 11 is dealing with, is a futuristic kind of faith. Likewise, when you go to the, that passage in Romans chapter 8, Paul will say in that same passage that, you know, we don't hope for the things that we've already seen. We're hoping for things that we haven't seen. Romans 8.25 says, but if we hope for what we don't see, it's with perseverance that we're awaiting it eagerly. So both of these passages is looking at that aspect of faith that's futuristic in nature. But look, faith is by no means mono-dimensional or right. single-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional. And, right. and faith, biblical faith, has past aspects, present aspects, and future aspects. Could we just look at a couple of passages to represent each one of those, uh, th those three different aspects or areas of faith? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the essence, the basis, the foundation of our faith is on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in accordance with the Scriptures. Mm -hmm. That's past tense stuff, right? 
Those three things, death, burial, resurrection, the ground, the foundation, the basis of our faith, those are past events. It's all, we're having trust in God now on the basis of things that have already happened. We're not looking in the future for a death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Those are past realities that are the ground of our yes. faith. Very similarly, similarly in, with respect to the present aspect of faith, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the word of the cross, that, that message that brings faith to us initially is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who, to those of us who are being, present tense, mm. are being saved, it's the power of God to salvation. So faith has past aspect, faith has future aspects, and then the scripture is very clear, and this is the part that we usually emphasize, this idea of a faith in a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last days as Peter talks about it. So faith's not mono, but multi-dimensional. It has past, present, and future aspects that inform what's happened in the past, inform, can we trust God now? Can we trust God to, with our needs for tomorrow? And biblical faith in, in Scripture, the Bible presents faith that's based on reality, faith that's based on evidence, faith that can be confirmed. Just look at a couple of passages, one representing the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, one representing the New Testament. In the book of Exodus, we hear about Moses at the burning bush. And Moses has accepted this commission. Okay, I'll go back and, and, and I'll be your instrument of deliverance to your people. But these folks have been imprisoned uh, slaves for 400 years, and they've been surrounded by polytheism. They're, they're gods everywhere, hundreds of Egyptian gods. Who do I tell them is sending me? Who's the authority behind my words? And God says, well, you tell them I am who I am sent you. And Moses says, okay, what does that mean? I am who I am. God continues. It says, Furthermore, in other words, let me amplify what I've just told you. You tell them that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is the one sending you. That'll resonate with them. That, that will put them in, in, in the framework, in the frame of mind of, okay, this is not just one of these weird Egyptian gods that we've been surrounded by for 400 years. This God is a God who's got history. This is a God who's got a really good resume. I mean, he's got a portfolio that goes all the way back to his faithfulness and his trustworthiness, his provision, his protection, his guidance to all of our forefathers, yeah. never letting one of his promises fall to the ground. Okay, this is a God that I can trust to do what he says he's going to do. And if he says he's going to deliver me, I can take that to the bank. He is going to deliver me. Take that into the New Testament and you see the same thing. It's the same God, so expect the same message. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he began to appear to people all over the place. And in Acts 1, it says that he gave to these disciples in the first century, people who had experienced his death, burial, resurrection, seen his miracles, watched his life live before them. It says that he gave them many convincing proofs. And 
my conclusion is if that first century, that first generation of believers needed that kind of assurance, then we surely do 21 centuries later need that same many convincing proofs. Yeah. And God has and will continue to give those convincing proofs to those who love him, those who are called to him. So no doubt about it, biblical faith is not just all futuristic pie in the sky, by and by, hoping against hope, keeping your fingers and toes and eyes crossed that maybe we've made the right decision, chosen the right way or whatever. But this biblical faith that we have has aspects of past and present as well as future. And we have a God that we serve who is a God of history, a God of reality, a God of fulfilled promises, not empty hoping against uh, hope. And by the way, if you want to read a little bit more about that, I wrote an article a few years ago called Faith and Evidence, Enemies or Allies. It's out there. You can find it. Maybe that'll further amplify this discussion. Pastor? Yeah, yeah so true. Um, faith then responds to all of this. And God always, He acted in space. He acted in time. He acted in real history. Um, the incarnation, God becoming a man in Jesus, uh, m made it very tangible in Jesus saying, I, I am the embodiment of, of the truth. Um, I mean, there's so much foundation. This is, it's incredible. That's why we can talk about evidence here. And then, and then we, we respond by faith. I, I want to go back to Hebrews 11, just with a closing verse. Because in Hebrews 11:6, six, it's one of my favorite verses actually. Um, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So understanding evidence isn't quite enough. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then he breaks it down into two steps. Because when, when anyone comes to him, he must believe that he exists. That person believes that he exists, so they believe he's real. And he may be real, but he, I mean, he might be a bad guy, right? I mean, who knows? I mean, what about his character, though? Right. And he goes on to say, not only his reality, his, he exists, but here's his character. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. Yes. In other words, he's not only real, but he's responsive. And you put that whole package together with all the evidence of, of past, present, future. Um, this is the point at which it can absolutely transform our lives. That, that I, I, I do take that step to say, okay, on the basis of the evidence, well, I'm, I'm going to believe that you're real. Can you absolutely prove it? Well, you can't absolutely disprove it either, but there's a lot of evidence that he is real. Yeah. And, and then you take that step of faith to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to crack the door of my heart open to you. And, and I believe if I yeah. become your seeker, if I'm really wanting to find, not what everyone around me believes, but if I really want to find you, if you are the truth, I'm going to seek you, that, that our God is going to be responsive to us. Amen. You know, I dealt with doubt. I met Jesus as a boy, especially when I was about eight years old. I was baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit when I was 14. But when I was about 16, maybe 15, 16, 17, I, I really began to struggle with doubt. And, you know, I had a lot of evidence in my head of people's lives being transformed around me. And for some reason, it wasn't, does God exist? I had kind of that down. But did Jesus really rise from the dead? And some of these things we're going to be talking about mm -hmm. real specifically. And... and um, for me, I need, there's a spiritual battle associated with that, but I, I mentioned this because you talked about the doubt in your life too. I mean, this is very real, and, and, and yet 
Yet I found that he does reward those who earnestly seek him. I mean, earnestly means you're not playing games with him. Right. I, I remember coming to the place and saying, Lord, I can't live a lie. Either I need you to really reveal yourself yes. to me, or, or I can't pretend like I believe this. Right. And I wasn't playing games with God, you know. But then God really revealed himself to me. And... Um, and then it would be later even more evidence would stack up in the favor of right. how he revealed himself to me. So, Wave, I'm going to ask you to, uh, just a moment, lead us in prayer. In fact, the worship team could come.